The accounts of revival in religion in the 18th century in New England from 1705 to 1734. Introduction. The sad decay of vital religion in New England after the death of the first planters. The complaints of their godly ministers on that account. Mr. Samuel Danforth, a pious and learned minister in Roxbury, in a sermon before the General Court of the Massachusetts Colony on May 11, 1670, being the day of election of magistrates, hath the following words, quote, Whether we have not in a great measure forgot our errand into the wilderness is a solemn and serious inquiry. You solemnly profess before God, angels and men, that the cause of your leaving your country, kindred and fathers, houses and transporting yourselves and your wives and little ones and substance over the vast ocean into this howling wilderness was your liberty to walk in the faith of the gospel with all good conscience according to the order of the gospel and your enjoyment of the pure worship of God according to his institution without human mixtures and impositions. Now let us consider whether our ancient and primitive affection to the Lord Jesus, his glorious gospel, remain. Let us call to remembrance of former days and consider whether it was not then better with us than it is now. In our first and best times the kingdom of heaven broke in upon us with a holy violence and every man pressed into it. What mighty efficacy and power had the clear and faithful dispensation of the gospel upon your hearts? How affectionately and zealously did you entertain the kingdom of God? How careful were you, even all sorts, young and old, high and low, to take hold of the opportunities of your spiritual good and edification, ordering your secular affairs so as not to interfere with your general calling? How diligent and faithful in preparing your hearts for the reception of the word, laying apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, that you might receive with meekness the engrafted word, in purging out all malice, guile, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, and as newborn babes desiring the sincere milk of the word. How attentive in hearing the everlasting gospel, watching daily at the gates of wisdom, and waiting at the post of her doors, that you might find eternal life and obtain favor of the Lord gleaning day by day in the field of God's ordinances and beating out what you had gleaned by repetition and conference how painful in recollecting, repeating and discoursing what you heard wetting the word of God upon the hearts of your children, servants and neighbors how fervent in prayer to God for his blessing on the seed sown oh what an esteem for Christ's faithful ambassadors in those days how precious were they in your eyes counting yourselves happy in the enjoyment of a pious, learned, and orthodox ministry. What ardent desires after communion with Christ and His ordinances. What solicitude to seek the Lord after the right order. What fervent zeal against all manner of heterodoxies. What holy endeavor to propagate religion to your children and posterity. Charging them to know the God of their fathers and serve Him with a perfect heart publicly asserting and maintaining their interest in the Lord and in His holy covenant, and zealously opposing those that denied the same. Then had the churches rest and were edified, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost. Oh, how your faith grew exceedingly! You, pro you proceeded from faith to faith, from a less to a greater degree, growing up in Him who is your head, and receiving abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. Oh, how your love and charity towards each other abounded! Oh, what comfort of love! What a holy sympathy, weeping with those that wept and rejoicing with those that rejoiced! But who is there left amongst you that saw these churches in their first glory? And how do you see them now? Are they not in your eyes in comparison thereof as nothing? Is not the temper, complexion, and countenance of the churches strangely altered? Does not a careless remiss, flat, dry, cold, dead frame of spirit grow upon us secretly, strongly, prodigiously? 
They that have ordinances are as though they had none. They that hear the word as though they heard it not. And they that pray as though they prayed not. And they that receive the sacraments as though they received them not. And they that are exercised in holy things, using them by the by, as manners of custom and ceremony, pride, contention, worldliness, covetousness, luxury, drunkenness, and uncleanness break in like a flood upon us. And good men grow cold in their love to God and one another. End quote. The Reverend Dr. Increase Mather, in a treatise entitled Pray for the Rising Generation, printed in 1678, writes as follows, quote, Prayer is needful on this account, and that conversions are become rare in this age of the world. They that have their thoughts exercised and discern in things of this nature have had sad apprehensions with reference unto this manner, that the work of conversion hath been at a great stand in the world. And there's a sermon preached, but some evidently converted, and sometimes hundreds in a sermon. Which of us can say we have seen the like? Clear, sound conversions are not frequent in some congregations. The body of the rising generation is a poor, perishing, unconverted, and except the Lord pour down His Spirit, an undone generation. Many that are profane, drunkard, swears, lascivious, scoffers at the powers of godliness, despisers of those that are good, disobedient, others that are only civil and outwardly conformed to good order by reason of their education, but never knew what the new birth means, end quote. Mr. Samuel Torrey, pastor of the church at Weymouth, in a sermon entitled A Plea for the Life of Dying Religion from Deuteronomy 32, verses 47, quote, Because it is your life, preached before the general court of the Massachusetts colony on May 16, 1683, being the day of their election, says, quote, that there has been a vital decay, a decay upon the very vitals of religion, by a deep declension in the life and power of it, that there is already a great death upon religion, little more left than a name to live, that the things which remain are ready to die, and that we are in great danger of dying together with it. This is one of the most awakening and humbling considerations of our present state and condition. Oh, the many dead symptoms that are upon our religion! Consider we then how much it is dying, respecting the very being of it by the general failure of the work of conversion, whereby only it is that religion is propagated, continued, and upheld in being among any people. As converting work doth cease, so religion doth die away, though more insensibly, yet more irrecoverably. How much religion is dying in the very hearts of sincere Christians by the declensions in grace, holiness, and the power of godliness. How much it is dying, respecting the visible profession and practice of it, partly by the formality of churches, but more by the hypocrisy and apostasy of formal hypocritical professors, how much it is dying under the prevailing power of those sins and evils, which are utterly inconsistent with and destructive of the life of it. Those sins continue and prevailing. Religion cannot live, it must needs die. Quote. Dr. Increase Mather, in his book entitled The Glory Departing from New England, printed in 1702, writes as follows, quote, Quote, we are the posterity of the good old Puritan nonconformists in England, who were a strict and holy people. Such were our fathers who followed the Lord into this wilderness. O oh, New England, New England, look to it that the glory be not removed from thee, for it begins to go. O oh, tremble, for it is going. It is gradually departing. Although there is that of divine glory still remaining, which we ought to be very thankful for, nevertheless much of it is gone. 
you that are aged persons and can remember what New England was 50 years ago that saw these churches in their first glory is there not a sad decay and diminution of that glory how has the gold become dim the most fine gold changed alas what a change is there in that which has been our glory time was when these churches were beautiful as Terza comely as Jerusalem terrible as an army with banners what a glorious presence of Christ was there in all his ordinances. Many were converted and willingly declared what God had done for their souls. And there were added to the churches daily such as should be saved. But are not sound conversions become rare in this day and in many congregations? Look into the pulpits and see if there is such a glory there as once there was. New England has had teachers eminent for learning and no less eminent for holiness and all ministerial accomplishments. When will Boston see a Cotton and a Norton again? When will New England see a Thomas Hooker or a Shepherd or a Mitchell, not to mention others? No little part of the glory was laid in the dust when these eminent servants of Christ were laid in their graves. Look into our civil state. Does Christ reign there as once he did? How many churches, how many towns are there in New England that we may sigh over them and say, The glory is gone! How many are there among us whose fathers in coming into the wilderness design nothing but religion, but they are not for another interest? There is sad cause to fear that great departures of the glory are hastening upon us. For first those sins which have provoked the Lord to remove His glory are not reformed. Our iniquities testify against us, and our backslidings are many. That there is a general defection in New England from primitive purity and piety in many respects is so plain it cannot be denied. Secondly, there are ministers who are not like their predecessors, nor principled, nor spirited as they were. Thirdly, the providence of God is threatening to pull down the wall which has been a defense to these churches. Fourthly, that which some have thought was a special design of providence in bringing choice people into this part of the world seems to be now over. It has been by wise and good men conjectured that the Lord's more peculiar design was that the world might see a specimen of what shall be over all the earth and the glorious times expected. End quote. Dr. Increase Mather, in a preface to a course of sermons on early piety by some ministers of Boston printed in 1711, writes, quote, I am now in the 83rd year of my age, and having had an opportunity to converse with the first planters of this country, and having been for 65 years a preacher of the gospel, I cannot but be in the disposition of those ancient men who had seen the foundation of the first house and wept with a loud voice to see what a change the work of the temple had upon it. I wish it were no other than the weaknesses of Horace's old man, the laudator temperus acti, when I complain there is a grievous decay of piety in the land and the leave in the first love, and that the beauties of holiness are not to be seen as once they were, and the very interest of New England seems to be changed from a religious to a worldly one. Oh, that my head were waters and mine eyes a fountain of tears! End quote. And in the sermon in the aforementioned book on early piety, he further writes, quote, The children of New England are or once were, for the most part, the children of godly men. What did our forefathers come into this wilderness for? Not to gain estates, as men do now, but for religion, and that they might leave their children in the hopeful way of being truly religious. There was a famous man that preached before one of the greatest assemblies that ever was preached unto seventy years ago, and he told them, I have lived in a country seven years, and all that time I never heard one profane oath, and all that time I never did see a man drunken on that land. Where was that country? It was New England. But, ah, oh, degenerate New England, what art thou come to at this day? How are those sins become common in thee that once were not so much as heard of in this land? End quote. 
There is the following remarkable passage in the sermon of the late Dr. Cotton Mather at the public lecture in Boston, printed in 1706, entitled The Good Old Way, quote, It is confessed by all who know anything of the matter, and oh, why not with rivers of tears be welled, that there is a general and an horrible decay of Christianity among the professors of it. The glorious and heavenly religion of our precious Christ generally appears with quite another face in the lives of Christians at this day than what it did in the lives of the saints, into whose hands it was first of all delivered. The modern Christianity is too generally but a very shadow of the ancient. Ah, sinful nation! Ah, children that are corruptors! What have your hands done to defile and deface a jewel which restored unto its native luster would outshine the sun in the firmament? So notorious is the decay of Christianity that whole books are written to inquire into it. The complaints of the corruptions that are become epidemical in the lives of Christians and little short of universal are everywhere every day wounding our ears. And last year come so far that one of the English bishops has let fall this mournful passage. Were a wise man to choose his religion by the lives of them who profess it, perhaps Christianity would be the last religion he would choose. And sadder yet, there has been a set of Protestants in the best island under heaven, Protestants who have made a profession of more than ordinary purity. There was a time when their behavior did much answer to their profession, but I have lately read another insulting over them, that these also have a later time almost wholly lost the reputation which mankind once allowed unto them. In these deplorable circumstances of Christianity, what shall be done? It is now past mere conjecture with me. I am now got up into an absolute certainty that we are entered into that age wherein the primitive Christianity shall be revived unto astonishment. The enemies of it shall see it and be grieved, and they shall gnash their teeth and melt away. Quote. Section 1 Of the Revival in Massachusetts in 1680, upon the solemn renewing of covenant with God and one another, of the revival in Taunton in February 1705, which we began with meetings for prayer among the young men and societies for reformation in imitation of those at London. In 1679, the Massachusetts government called a synod of all the churches in that colony to consider and answer these two most important questions. Number one, what were the evils that have provoked the Lord to bring his judgments on New England? Number two, what is to be done that those evils may be reformed? And among their answers to the second question, the Synod advised the several churches to an express and solemn renewal of covenant with God and one another, with which many complied, and thereupon there was a considerable revival of religion among them. And Dr. Cotton Mather tells us in his Church History of New England, Book 5, that, quote, Very remarkable was the blessing of God on the churches which did not so sleep, as some others, not only by a great advancement of holiness in the people, but also by a great addition of converts to their holy fellowship. And many thousand spectators will testify that they never saw the special presence of the great God our Savior more notably discovered than in the solemnity of these opportunities." Quote. Dr. Cotton Mather likewise adds that the Massachusetts colony was not alone in such essays of reformation, but the colonies of Plymouth and Connecticut and so on. And yet sadly goes on in the following words, quote, Our manifold indispositions to recover the dying power of godliness were punished with successive calamities, under all of which the apostasies from that godliness have rather increased than abated. Although there has been a glorious profession of religion made by the body of this people unto this day, yea, and although there be thousands 
who by keeping their hearts with all diligence and by ordering their conversations aright, justify their profession, yet the number of them that so strictly walk with God has been woefully decaying. The old spirit of New England has been sensibly going out of the world, as the old saints in whom it was have gone. And instead thereof, the spirit of the world with a lamentable neglect of strict piety has crept in upon the rising generation." Thus, alas, that revival of religion in New England about the year 1680 soon passed away. Number two. A second instance of some revival of religion in this country was about the year 1705, which I find in a book printed at London in 1706, entitled A Help to National Reformation. And in three manuscript letters of the Reverend Samuel Danforth of Taunton, a worthy son of the Reverend Mr. Danforth of Roxbury before mentioned. The passage in the said printed books are as follows, quote, a reverend divine of New England, in his letter dated from Boston, the 23rd of November, 1705, says thus, Our societies for the suppression of disorders increase and prosper in this town. There are two more such societies added unto the former. There are also religious societies without number in this country that meet at proper times to pray together and repeat sermons, and forward one another in the fear of God. In some towns of this country, the ministers who furnish themselves with a society for the suppression of disorders hardly find any notorious disorders to be suppressed. But then their societies are helpful unto them, and do an abundance of good for the advancement of serious religion in the neighborhood, and to make their ministry much more profitable than the weekly exercise of it." Quote. A gentleman writes from New England in his letter of the 20th of November, 1705, quote, "...to gratify your desires to know what progress we make here in the societies, I add a line or two to certify, that in Boston the societies for suppressing disorders, of which mention was made in my former letters, are upheld, and two other societies of the same nature erected, all which are spirited to be active according to their abilities and influence to promote virtue and discountenance and suppress vice." And not only in Boston are such good things done and doing, but in many places in the province besides. Omitting many other places that might be enumerated as to other places, I shall sum up in short an account of what has been done in a town called Taunton through the rich mercy of God. The Reverend Mr. Danforth, minister there, having seen some printed accounts of the methods for reformation in Old England, an imitation thereof, after earnest prayers to God for success, obtained of several inhabitants of the place, that were noted for sobriety and zeal against sin, to meet with him once in each month, to consult what might be done to promote a reformation of disorders there. And after a day improved in fasting and prayer together, they first attempted to induce the heads of families to set up family worship. And God gave them great success, so that most of the families in large towns hearkened to their exhortations and reproofs, and set upon the practice of family prayer morning and evening every day. Having heard and read some accounts of the religious societies of young men in London, they were encouraged to endeavor the like among them. And beyond their expectation, God working with them prevailed with the greatest part of the youth to form themselves into societies for religious exercises, signing some good rules to be observed by them therein, much like the orders of the societies of young men in London. The good effect whereof was the putting an end to the utter banishment of their former disorderly and profane meetings to drink and so on. The three manuscript letters from the said Mr. Danforth of Taunton are these, quote, Taunton, February 20, 1704 and 5. Sir, 
We are much encouraged by an unusual and amazing impression made by God's Spirit on all sorts amongst us, especially on the young men and women. It is almost incredible how many visit me with discoveries of the extreme distress of mind they are in about their spiritual condition. And the young men, instead of their merry meetings, are now, now forming themselves into regular meetings for prayer, repetition. repetition of sermons, signing the same orders, which I obtained some years ago, a copy of from the young men's meeting in the north of Boston. Some awful death and amazing providences have occurred with the word preached to this good effect. The profaneness amongst us seems startled at the sudden change upon the rising generation. We need much prayer that these strivings of the Spirit may have a saving issue and effect. Our family meetings are more and more frequented, and two more setting up at two remote corners of our large town where we despaired of seeing any. Our last society, which was yesterday, had almost nothing to do only to express our joy to each other that the disorderly concourse of youth was now over. We are both church and all inhabitants to renew the covenant for reformation this week which this people made with God the last Philip Indian War. We agreed to turn our next society meeting into a fast also for special reasons, one of which was that we find prayer our best weapon to reform vice, and the devil's kingdom cannot stand before it. Also as worldly men, when they find the world comes hovering in upon them, will pull the harder for it, which should make us pray more earnestly and fervently, having had encouragement so far, that when we can do nothing else but stretch out withered hands in God's work, yet even doing of that shall not be in vain. Some remarkables in the progress of our Reformation work I shall not commit to writing at present, but if, but, if common fame do not bring them to you, shall reserve them to be discovered by a word of mouth. The Lord be with you all. Amen. Yours entirely. S.D. March 5, 1794 and 5. Quote, Sir, it was a most comfortable day, the 1st of March, when we renewed the Reformation Covenant, of which I suppose you have a copy by you already. Only we added an engagement to reform idleness, unnecessary frequenting houses of public entertainment, irreverent behavior in public worship, neglect of family prayer, promise-breaking and walking with slanderers and reproachers and others, and that we should all in our families be subject to good order and government. It was read to the brethren and sisters in the forenoon, they standing up as an outward sign of their inward consent to the rest of the inhabitants, in the afternoon they standing up also when it was read. And then every one that stood up brought his name ready writ on a paper and put into the box, that it might be put on church record. The forenoon text was Hebrews 12 verse 4 about resisting and striving against sin the common enemy of us all the afternoon text was Second Chronicles 29 verse 10 we gave liberty to all men and women from 16 years old and upwards to act with us and had 300 names given into list unto Christ against the sins of the times the whole acted with such gravity and tears of good affection as would affect an heart of stone parents weeping for joy seeing their children give their names to Christ and we had several children of the church in neighboring towns who came and joined with us in it. We have a hundred more than will yet bind themselves in the covenant that were then detained from meeting. Let God have the glory. Yesterday fourteen were propounded to the church, some for full communion, others for baptism, being adult persons. All this calls for prayer and humble walking with God and hope in His mercy. End quote. Taunton, March 20, 1704 and 5. Quote, Sir, I have now yours and have sent you two letters this week. 
I've little to add and no time to enlarge, but my time is spent in daily discourse with the young people visiting me with their doubts, fears, and agonies. Religion flourishes to amazement and admiration, that so we should be at once touched with soul affliction, and this in all corners of the place, and that our late conversion should be attended with more than usual degrees of horror, and Satan permitted to wrestle with them by extraordinary temptations and assaults and hours of darkness. But I hope the deeper the wound, the more sound may be the cure, and I have little time to think of worldly manners, scarce time to study sermons as I used to do, but find God can bless mean preparations whenever he pleases, that such shall be most cried up and commended, which I have had scarce time to methodize. I think sometimes that the time of the pouring out of the Spirit upon all flesh may be at the door. Let us be earnest in prayer that Christ's kingdom may come, and that being an instrument of good to others, I may not myself be a castaway. Yours, S.D. Number 3. We shall next give these particular instances of the revival of religion in Northampton in the days of the late Mr. Solomon Stoddard, as Mr. Edwards gives them in the two following paragraphs written in 1736, quote, I am the third minister that has been settled in this town. Mr. Ebenezer Mather, who was the first, was ordained in July 1669. He was one whose heart was much in his work, abundant in his labors for the good of precious souls. He had the high esteem and great love of his people, and was blessed with no small success. Mr. Stoddard, who succeeded him, came first to the town the November after his death, but was not ordained till September 11, 1672, and died February 11, 1728 9, so that he continued in the work of the ministry here from his coming to town near sixty years. And as he was eminent for his gifts and grace, so he was blessed from the beginning with extraordinary success in his ministry and the conversion of many souls. He had five harvests, as he called them. The first was about the year 1679, the second was about 1683, the third about 1696, and the fourth about the year 1712, the fifth and last about 1718. Some of these times were much more remarkable than others, and the ingathering of souls more plentiful. Those that were about 1683, 1696, and 1712 were much more greater than either the first or the last. But in each of them I have heard my grandfather say the greater part of the young people in the town seemed to be mainly concerned for their eternal salvation. Number four. There was also a remarkable instance of the revival of religion in the year 1721 at Wyndham in Connecticut Colony. The account is contained in a preface to a sermon preached by Mr. Adams of New London on a day of thanksgiving at Wyndham for the late remarkable success of the gospel among them in which preface it is said, quote, It seems to be something necessary that some account should be given of the occasion of the ensuing discourse and it may through the blessing of God be useful unto many when they shall hear of the grace of God unto others and how he hath been mercifully pleased to visit his people, end quote. Wyndham is a town of about thirty years standing, where the Reverend Mr. Samuel Whiting has been employed in the work of the ministry from the beginning. God has been pleased to make him a very rich blessing among them, and doubtless many will have reason to bless God forever, and that their lot has been cast to dwell under his ministry. Not only has he seen the town flourishing to that degree in this short space of time, is that two other societies are already sprung out therefrom. But he has had the comforts to observe that many living and serious Christians have been born there. But of late there has been a greater stirring than ordinary among the dry bones. Many have been awakened to consider and inquire with a great deal of earnestness what they should do to be saved. 
Persons of all ages and some of whom there was but little expectation have come together to seek the Lord their God, so that within the compass of about half a year there have been fourscore persons joined to their communion, and more are still dropping in. Could the reverend pastor have been prevailed upon so far to have gratified the public? We might have been entertained with the knowledge of many particulars, which ought not to be forgotten, while the Holy Spirit, like the wind that bloweth where it listeth, has been dividing to everyone severally as he will in this day of their visitation. But at present we must be content with this short and imperfect account. In the meantime, it is surprising to see what an happy alteration there is made when God is pleased to bless the dispensation of the gospel and the institutions of his house, and confirm his word in the mouths of his servants. Now the eyes of the blind are open, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the dumb are taught to speak, and they that were spiritually dead are raised unto life. To behold obstinate sinners that went on forwardly in the ways of their own heart, yielding themselves unto God, such as were careless and unconcerned about their own souls, now brought to the last distress and concern about what they shall do to escape from the wrath that is to come, and such as were fond of their several vicious courses, now quitting them with shame and indignation, that they may endeavor for the future to lead their life, not according to the lusts of men, but the will of God. Shall it not from this time be said, What hath God wrought? Surely it is the work of him that at first commanded the light to shine out of darkness, and called the things that were not as though they were. Now the work grows easy and delightful in the hand of the Lord's servants. Their former sighs occasioned by their unsuccessful endeavors are changed into praises, and they almost forget their other sorrows and burdens that are upon them, for joy that people are born unto the Lord. Now they that have happily escaped out of the snare of the fowler admire the wonders of free grace which remembered and visited them in their low estate. They are brought forth into the light of life, and having their doubts and fears gradually dissipated, they go on rejoicing for the consolation. Their fellow Christians who were in Christ before them receive them with open arms, and many thanksgivings are offered up unto the Lord. Now things put on the same face of gladness and delight as once they did at Samaria when Christ was preached with success, Acts 8, verse 8. And there was great joy in that city. It was upon this occasion that a day of thanksgiving was appointed and observed by the distinguished people when the following discourse was delivered and is now by their pressing and repeated instances published to the world. If it may be any way serviceable to influence them to stand fast in the Lord or stir up any to mind the things that belong unto their peace, there will be the less occasion to apologize for the defects and imperfections that may attend it. But oh, that the same good spirit from on high were poured out upon the rest of the country. For what pity is it that the single fleece only should be wet with the dew of heaven, while the rest of the ground round about remains comparatively dry? And may we not say with the psalmist, It is time for thee, Lord, to work, when iniquity gets head and serious religion is so sadly decaying throughout the land, insomuch that there is scarce a sufficient number rising up to make good the ground of them that are dropping off the stage continually, especially when we consider also how much short they come of their good spirit, and we are almost at a loss to find Christians among Christians. It is true God is calling loudly to us by a variety of providences. The means of grace are yet in our hands, and the ordinances are among us. But where is the God of the ordinances? And where are all the wonders which our fathers told us of when the arm of the Lord was powerfully revealed, and people more generally believed the report of the gospel? 
May the Lord please to revive His own work and help us to remember, hold fast and repent and do our first works. May His good spirit be poured out more plentifully upon poor ministers and people that the one may preach more plainly, boldly and with an uncommon concern for the glory of God and the good of immortal souls and the other may attend with more earnestness and care to the things that are spoken lest at any time they let them slip. And may that good spirit of piety and devotion which sometimes through the blessing of God and the influence of His grace begins to kindle in this or that place spread like a flame throughout the land to purge away our dross and raise up a seed which shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. For this let everyone that is godly pray unto Him day and night since with Him is the residue of the Spirit and He delights to be stirred up by the prayers of His people. Let us take with us words and cry in the language of the prophet Isaiah 51 verse 9 Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord, awake as in the ancient days and the generations of old. Who can tell but that as he has begun to pour out of his good spirit, so he may please to perfect the good work and cause the good favor of his knowledge to spread far and wide. Let us, as they that wish well to the cause of serious and practical religion, seeing the times are drawn nearer, wait upon the Lord till he shall appear for our help. Bring in salvation when all difficulties shall be removed, the mountains be leveled and made a plain, and whatsoever lettuce shall be forever taken away, when he that hath laid the foundation shall bring forth the headstone with shouting, while the standers by are prepared with joyful acclamations to cry, Grace, grace unto it. New London, September 12, 1721. In the application of the sermon, Mr. Adams says, page 24, quote, I would now take leave to apply myself more particularly to the people in this place. A good work has been of late wrought among you. Many have been awake and convinced, and as we ought charitably to hope, effectually brought home to God. The neighborhood hath rung of it, and it has been told for a memorial of divine grace. Good people everywhere have rejoiced upon the hearing of it and glorified God in you. Satan has been alarmed and enraged, as we may well think, to see such an encroachment made upon his kingdom, to behold such large waste and spoil made of his goods. This is doubtless the finger of God. To him the praise of it is entirely due, and you have well done to set apart this time for your public thankful acknowledgement of this and other mercies. Suffer me, therefore, to apply myself particularly. Number one, to them who have happily been wrought upon in this day of grace and pouring out of the Spirit... Number two, to them who have been passed over and suffered to remain still in their former hardness and security. Number three, to all the godly and Christian people in this place. Under this last head, he says, Number one, Be more confirmed in your way by all the great things which the Lord has been doing among you of late. I trust that you are already well-rooted and established in the faith, so that nothing will easily move you from your steadfastness. Yet now through the mercy of God you have an abundant confirmation of your faith. You see what great virtue and efficacy there is in Christian doctrine, that it must needs be the word of God, seeing it produces such great and good and marvelous effects. You have a sensible and convincing proof before your eyes that there is something in religion, and have no further need of miracles to confirm it. When you see the doctrine of Christ triumphing, remarkably over the ignorance, the mistakes, the carelessness, and the wickedness of men, you have reason to draw that conclusion which sometimes Jacob did. Surely the Lord is in this place. Surely his word is good. The ways of the Lord are right, and the just shall walk in them. 
Let nothing for the future shake your steadfastness, and be not at all moved by the confidence of foolish men, if you should be assaulted by them, to divert you from that Christian course wherein you have been educated. And take that counsel in 1 Peter 1, verse 13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end, for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And thus he concludes, Let us all give thanks unto him whose mercy endureth forever, who hath ridden forth prosperously upon the word of truth, and has made so many people willing in the day of his power, may he still go on to subdue the people under him, that the hearts of the fathers may be brought down into the children, that we may still see the good of his chosen, and rejoice with the gladness of his inheritance. And oh, that the Lord would arise and have mercy upon Zion, that the time to favor it, the set time may come, that the whole earth may be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The next instance of religious concern we meet with is in the year 1727, after the earthquake of which Mr. Prince says, quote, In the night after the Lord's Day, October 29, 1727, there was a general and amazing earthquake throughout New England and the neighboring provinces which with several repeated shocks afterwards in diverse parts of the land, was a means of awakening many to serious thoughts of God and eternity and of reviving religion among us, which we shall give in the words of Dr. Sewell and the Reverend Mr. Prince, Webb and Cooper of Boston, in their preface to the third edition of Mr. Edwards' narrative. Mentioning some remarkable effusions of the Spirit of Christ in other ages and parts of the world, they go on as follows, quote, Nor have we in these remote corners of the earth where Satan had his seat from the time memorial, been left without a witness to the divine power and grace. Yea, we need look no higher than our own times to find abundant occasion to celebrate the wonderful works of God. Thus when God arose and shook the earth, his loud call to us in that amazing providence was followed, so far as man can judge, with the still voice of the Spirit, in which he was present to awaken many and bring them to say, trembling, What must we do to be saved? Yea, as we hope to turn not a few from sin to God and a thorough conversion. But when the bitterness of death was past, much the greater part of those whom God's terror affrighted gave sad occasion to remember those words of Psalm 78, 34, and 36. When he slew them, then they sought him. And they returned and inquired early after God. And they remembered that God was their rock and the high God their Redeemer. Nevertheless, they did flatter him with their mouths, and they lied unto him with their tongues. And there has since been great reason to complain of our speedy return to our former sins, notwithstanding some hopes given of a more general reformation. And in the account of the revival at Boston, it is farther said concerning this earthquake, quote, But after all our endeavors, both our security and degeneracy seemed in general to grow until the night after the Lord's Day, October 29, 1727, when the glorious God arose and fearfully shook the earth through all those countries. By terrible things and righteousness, he began to answer us as the God of our salvation. On the next morning, a very full assembly met at the North Church for the proper exercises on so extraordinary an occasion. At five in the evening, a crowded concourse assembled at the old church, and multitudes unable to get in immediately flowed to the south, and in a few minutes filled that also. At Lieutenant Governor Dummer's motion, who was then our commander, the Thursday of the same week was kept as a day of extraordinary fasting and prayer in all the churches in Boston, not merely to entreat for sparing mercy, but also to implore the grace and Spirit of God to come down and help us in a sincere repentance and returning to Him. And as the houses of public worship were greatly crowded, the people were very attentive, 
the ministers endeavor to set in with this extraordinary and awakening work of God and nature, and to preach his word in the most awakening manner, to show the people the vast difference between conviction and conversion, between a forced reformation, either in acts of piety, justice, charity, or sobriety, by the mere power of fear, and a genuine change of the very frame and relish of the heart by the supernatural efficacy of the Holy Spirit to lead them on to true conversion and unfeigned faith in Christ, and to guard them against deceiving themselves. In all our congregations, many seem to be awakened and reformed, and professing repentance of their sins and faith in Christ, entered into solemn covenant with God, and came into full communion with our several churches. In ours, within eight months after, were about eighty added to our communicants. But then comparatively few of these applied to me to discourse about their souls till they came to offer themselves to the communion or afterwards. The most of those who came to me seemed to have passed through their convictions before their coming to converse with me about approaching to the Lord's table, though I doubt not but considerable numbers were at that time savingly converted. There was a considerable revival in the end of 1730 and the three following years at Freehold in the province of New Jersey under the ministry of Doc, Mr. John Tennant and his brother Mr. William, who succeeded him, of which take the following account from a letter to the Reverend Mr. Prince at Boston, October 9, 1744. Quote, I desire to notice thankfully the late rich display of our glorious Emmanuel's grace in subduing by his word and spirit multitudes of sinners to himself, most gladly, therefore, do I comply with your request. But I must be general, having never made any memorandums in writing, yet I trust I shall be strictly true, for the Lord hates a false witness. The settling of this place with the gospel ministry was owing under God to the agency of some Scots people that came to it, among whom there was none so painful in this blessed undertaking as one Walter Kerr, who in the year 1685, for his faithful and conscientious adherence to God and his truth, as professed by the Church of Scotland, was there apprehended and sent into this country under a sentence of perpetual banishment, by which it appears that the devil and his instruments lost their aim in sending him from home, where it is unlikely he could ever have been so serviceable to Christ's kingdom as he has been here. He is yet alive, and blessed be God, he is flourishing in his old age, being in his 88th year. But to return the public means of grace dispensed here, were at first for a season too much like a miscarrying womb and dry breast, so that the major part of the congregation could not be said to have so much as a name to live. Family prayer was unpracticed by all, a very few accepted. Ignorance so overshadowed their minds that the doctrine of the new birth, when clearly explained and powerfully pressed upon them, as absolutely necessary to salvation by that faithful preacher of God's word, Mr. Thedorius Jacobus Freelandhaus, a Dutch minister, and some other English ministers who were occasionally here, was made a common game of, so that not only the preachers but professors of that truth were called in derision newborn and looked upon as holding forth of some new and false doctrine. And indeed their practice was as bad as their principles, loose and profane. In the year 1729 their ministers removed from them, and they were so grievously divided among themselves that it appeared improbable that they would ever agree in the settlement of another. In this miserable condition they lay, and few among them had either eyes to see or hearts to bewail their woeful, wretched circumstances. Thus they seemed to be cast out as the prophet Ezekiel represents it in the 16th chapter of his book in the 5th verse. But the Lord, who is rich in mercy of his unexpected and unmerited love, passed by them, lying in their blood, and said unto many of them since that day, Live, and live they shall to all eternity.
This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.